Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and as someone said after the first week of January, what a year this week has been. On January 5th, a pastor who is the successor to Martin Luther King Jr. as the head of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, and a former staffer to civil rights legend John Lewis, were elected to the United States Senate from Georgia, flipping control of the Senate to the Democrats for the first time in 12 years and making possible a whole slew of policy changes that will improve tens of millions of lives. The very next day, an armed insurrection took place in the United States Capitol with a mob storming the building while the entire legislative branch of the country was inside and the vice president as they were working to formalize and finalize the peaceful transfer of power in this country. The next week, the president of the United States was impeached for a second time, this time for inciting an insurrection. The first time in history, the sitting president has been impeached twice. And hopefully, barring any last minute insurrections and attacks on the Capitol from the time of the recording of the podcast and the airing, as of noon Eastern time on January 20th, the long national nightmare of the Trump presidency will have finally, finally come to an end. So, uh, yeah, it's been a year and it's only been three weeks. But as destructive, chaotic, Civil War-like as things have been, we are in fact now entering a new era. And it's an era where we have great possibility and potential for advancing justice, equality, and democracy. But it's also an era fraught with danger and risk in light of the ferocity of opposition that we saw on display during the January 6th insurrection. But Democrats do control the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate now, and if we make smart and strategic decisions, we can get back on the path of progress by improving people's lives and strengthening our power so we can withstand the attacks that will continue and escalate over the course of this decade. In today's episode, we're going to look ahead to what should happen in the first 100 days of the Biden administration. And we'll do that by also reflecting back on the first 100 days of the Obama-Biden administration in 2009, when Democrats also controlled Congress and the White House. And for that conversation, I'm joined not only by my co-host, Charlene Chang, but also by our esteemed data doctor and D.C. area resident, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, who was there with me in 2009 in many of those battles as we pushed the Obama administration in its early weeks and powers. How are you both doing? And are you ready for the post-Trump era? Hey, Steve. Hi there. Great to be with you all today. I was just listening to you and thinking, I'm ready, but not. <laughs> I, just, I probably felt like I was more ready prior to, like you said, all the different events, things going way sideways. But I'm um, just thinking also about last episode, remember what I said, which was, I feel like I'm going to have to enter each year now, um, expecting the unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that in terms of how COVID happened last year, yeah. but then on January 6th, there was the insurrection. So I just proved myself correctly. Which is, <laughs> I mean, I spoke, I guess, wisely, but almost too soon where I was like, it, you know, part of me was like, you know, but probably nothing like that's going to happen. So something that unexpected. Um, but yes, basically, there was the attempt to coup by thousands of white supremacists after I said that. And so we just never know. Uh, but I am 
loving just hearing the phrase post-Trump era over and over and looks like we made it. And I am about as ready as I ever will be for what this year has in store for us. How about you, Julie? Uh, a resounding yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than ready for the whole Washington region to be returned to the people once we've sent Trump out of here packing. Um, I mean, the, the past two weeks of having white supremacy on full display right here at home in the capital region and all of the military response that it provoked. I mean, after all of that, the COVID lockdown is going to seem like a walk in the park. You know, um, you know, my son keeps asking me when it's going to be safe enough for him to be able to go, you know, bike riding back into the district, which is what he's used to doing. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy the conditions that we're living under. And it's, it's all just a, a fitting end to the very long four years that, you know, we've really had to endure here, uh, you know, up close with the Trump administration, you know, being in power. So yeah, just, yes, more than ready. <laughs> I was thinking of this generation, your son's generation. It's like, should I be scared to go outside for COVID or oh soldiers gosh. protecting us from yeah. um, crazy yeah. riders? Yeah. Saying, Charlie, it's once in a hundred year pandemic, mm -hmm. followed by a once in 200 years storming of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We just, I, my generation, we just had to sit in the car and wait for long gas lines, right? <laughs> <laughs> dating myself but that uh, was well the truth of dating yourself and a complete diversion i spent went down a youtube rabbit hole of listening to uh, uh commercials of ron popeel from ronco and the vegematic uh commercial oh from back in the day so uh, that was uh, quite slices and dices that's right <laughs> set it and forget it <laughs> All right. So on to the real meat of the matters that we want to discuss today. Julie and Steve, I do want to hear about from you OGs, how you were very involved in D.C. politics when Obama first took office. And I wanted to, you know, just kind of tap your brain and like have you think back on stories. What was that like from the presidential transition to the first few months of the Obama administration? What were you working on? Main lessons learned, key mistakes that we hopefully Democrats won't make again. Again, just to remind us all, they when they transitioned, when Obama came in, Democrats also had control of White House, Senate and House, just like Biden's administration is having now. And just want to hear, you know, your thoughts on all of it. Yeah, I think that the one of the things I'm interested in your reflections to Julie, one of the things that struck me was the sense of hope and optimism and excitement really culturally throughout the city. And so I started going mm -hmm. back regularly. So we got an apartment. I was back in DC a week after Obama won in November, 2008. We actually got an apartment and we were working, you know, to help with the uh, different parts of the transition, et cetera. And just, it's like Obama embraced and was embraced by the city. And so I remember him going to Ben's Chili Bowl, which is like this iconic, you know, black restaurant on U, on U Street in D.C. And just the excitement. Th and then they have the sign. Um, what does it say? They have this handwritten sign that says, nobody eats free. It says, except for the Obamas. Right. And it was just like he, there would be these sightings. They would go out and they'd be around town and go different places. And it was really this whole cultural and social excitement and new era dynamic. Right. And lots of people, lots of activists who were like, you would not think of as, as like, you know, political administration people were going to D.C. to work in the administration, to take up these different positions. And so it was just an incredibly inspiring, hopeful period of time 
in the country, and the, it was very palpable um, in the district itself. And I don't know if you experienced it the same way, Julie. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember actually how uh, that first uh, school fundraiser that, you know, every school here has to do fundraisers. And the hottest item was a, a photograph of, um, of Barack Obama giving a speech. I forget which speech it was, but I mean, it was just this beautiful piece of art. And I don't even know what that thing went for. I mean, thousands of people, you know, I bid a lot. <laughs> I didn't win. I mean, obviously, we have to acknowledge that it was the first African-American president ever. Right? So, you know, that on top of the breath of fresh air after a Republican administration that people were feeling and the whole economy, you know, falling apart as he was entering off the office and all of the work that had to be done. You know, there was just like energy of all sorts in all directions that that uh, was in the air during that time. I mean, a lot of the work that we did, uh, we, you know, Steve, I, the folks from Power Pack and whatnot, you know, really fed into a lot of that. So we had a whole diversity talent bank that was um, something that I think a lot of people had thought would be a good idea. And then actually, you know, we were part of helping to put that together and make it real, create a, a pipeline for good, highly qualified folks to be able to find jobs in the administration and, you know, help make all those different ideas talked about on the campaign trail a reality. You know, thousands of people were sending in their resumes. I mean, it's, it, it happens every time, but there was a, a real um, difference in, you know, I think for people, what it meant to work for the Obama administration. And, and um, I think um, it will never be the same, but I have to say this year has a it is is also a high energy year in that sense because everyone knows that the folks who come in to do that work in the administration are going to have to really undo significant um, you know efforts over the past four years to basically destroy all that had been built up under Obama. So there's the undoing the bad and then actually moving the ball forward even beyond where Obama was able to take it to. That I think you know adds a it's a, it's a very attractive element for people who want to go into the Biden administration right now. Yeah, and I think I recall that also that sense of energy as well. But one of the other things that we ultimately wound up doing in 2009 is that it did become clear pretty quickly where there was a lack of consolidated, cohesive, powerful voice of people of color. And I think partly because, you know, Obama, as the first black president, had to tread lightly, right? Remember, he mm -hmm. came out. Uh, condemning the arrest of one of the most preeminent black uh, professors <laughs> in the country, yeah. Skip Gates. And he called it a stupid thing and he got attacked. And they had, they had the stupid beer summit where the, the arresting <laughs> officer and Skip Gates, you know, whatever, came to the White House. It was just absurd, the level of things he couldn't do. So we thought it was important to have a strong voice of people of color, and that wasn't really encouraged. And so one of the things that Julie and I worked on was really helping to organize this coalition, right? So our friend Ben Jealous had taken over at the NAACP. We knew folks that uh, was then called National Council of Narasa, Center for Community Change, Leadership Conference, U.S. Student Association. We brought the heads of those groups together to see if we could coordinate and collaborate and lift up a common uh, voice and perspective on and inject that into the political debate. We did it particularly around healthcare. We ran these ads on healthcare to push them because they were getting all this attack from the right. But that was an important thing that we did, and I think that's relevant as well in terms of which voices are most powerful and which voices are most validated um, within the context of the debate around what priorities should be advanced. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, very early on, we started seeing this tension over, you know, what progressives had fought hard for in order to, you know, get Obama elected and the policies that they wanted to see flow from his uh, presidency and a White House that was, you know, really kind of taking a much more middle of the road approach than than I think folks had expected and definitely wanted from them. And so there was a lot of jockeying around that. Um, you know, Rahm Emanuel being the chief of staff definitely didn't help that. You know, I mean, his thing was we're going to pass legislation. What's in there? Well, you know, I don't really care what's in it. I just want yeah, no, to I was you know, in a meeting. <laughs> I was at a, at a conference when somebody asked Rahm Emanuel, should there be a strong public option and a strong left flank around pushing mm -hmm. them? And he immediately says, no, we just need a bill. I don't care what's in it. And yeah. then he like caught himself. He could hear himself how bad that sounded. But it, that's when he spoke his true feeling. Yeah. Steve and Julie, let me just interject. I'm listening to you guys. And I wanted to ask you because um, we do want to talk about, you know, this historical um, background that you guys are giving in terms of your experience with the Obama administration transition is to also help our listeners understand, like, what we can maybe expect for the Biden-Harris administration or, or what we would you know, like to think that hopefully they will um, take away and have um, lessons learned and, you know, maybe do differently. And what I do hear from you guys and others is this concern about whether or not there will be this timidity of progressives and Democrats that we've seen in the past, as uh, even when they have the opportunity, when they have so much control and power over, the, you know, having the White House, the House, and the Senate. Although I do want to, um, you know, add like, you know, and just you guys can think about it. There are some people who argue, well, Obama being the first black president, isn't there an argument that he couldn't really come off as appearing too progressive? Remember all of us having the fear, you know, just hoping that he would survive the first hundred days and some crazy person wouldn't try to take him out. So to what degree do we think that Biden-Harris administration, will they be up against certain pressures to be more middle of the road? Or do you think that they should just not do that and try to be as progressive as yeah. comfortable? Yeah, they definitely will feel that pressure. I don't think that they should pay much heed to it. I mean, if anything, the lesson coming out of the first 100 days for Obama, I, I would think, is that you shouldn't hold back. You just got to go for the, the big, go big for the things you actually want. Because self you know self-censoring and making making things smaller at the beginning and a hope that uh somehow it's going to make it more palatable and that folks will cross over to join you if you don't push too far that obviously did not work i mean yeah, in, in back then just... we had even a better uh you know in terms of the numbers from the yeah. house and the senate yeah yeah and i think there's two examples i think that are very much on point and are are uh, instructive for this point for this period right so one is healthcare. And so we, uh, Obama spent um, eight months, I think. Well, we really argue wasted eight months trying to get Republican support to move move health care. And he, you know, put this you know very moderate Democrat in charge of it, put it in a you know moderate committee in the Senate, trying, trying, trying to get. And he got not only did he get no Republican support after and, and lost some of the momentum. But they're still trying to undo Obamacare 12 years later, right? And so that is, I think, one key lesson in terms of example of that. It's just, it's just not going to work. And then the other is immigration, right? And there are articles in this time period, right, saying, you quote, I think I, tell you, I mentioned this in my book, um, Brennan's New White, that there were a, part of the thinking of the Obama era people was, well, 
we'll show them how tough we're going to be on border enforcement. And then that will be, enable us to get more bipartisan support for immigration reform. And so here we are again, 12 years later, how many millions of lives disrupted and really damaged because of all the attacks on immigration. And that got us nothing as well. And so it's really, I hope, and since Biden was there, that they will see that there is not going to be the level of cooperation and bipartisan uh, unity that gets talked about. That is not how the opposition operates. And that's a critical lesson heading into those first 100 days. Let's talk about those next 100 days, shall we? And let's talk about top priorities. But first, Steve, I just wanted to remind our listeners, you're working on a book about how the Civil War never ended. And little did we know, because you picked that framing last year, actually how timely and on point that would be. And now everyone's basically making that comparison, using that framing. Ron Brownstein, who's a journalist at The Atlantic and CNN, he was also on our podcast last March. He has an excellent column at CNN.com titled, Trump Leaves America at Its Most Divided Since the Civil War. He writes in that column, quote, the upsurge in white nationalist violence under Trump seems less like a new phenomenon than the resurgence of an old one, a determination to use force to maintain a clear racial hierarchy. Steve, do you agree with that? And what are you finding as you work on your book, which, by the way, is tentatively titled How We Win the Civil War? Yeah, no, it's it's eerie. And then we should you know, mention that you know, uh, we're, we're going to be publishing with the new press again, as we did Brown is the New White. Um, it's really eerie, the similarities that are, are, are coming out to play and that people are starting to address it. And even the whole thing about the attack on the Capitol goes back to the a, a law passed around how you count electoral votes after the, the Civil War. So I, we can get into a lot that a lot more in the in, in, in the future, but I think there's a few key lessons that are applicable to looking at this moment in the first uh, month of the Obama uh, <laughs> Freudian slip, <laughs> right, first like... months of the Biden administration. Right. So and again, as you're saying, the first is that the South, the Confederates never surrendered and that they have had a consistent battle plan to restore and defend white supremacy that goes back to 1865. And all of it's very similar. And there's like these core elements which they continue to do from that time to this day. And so one of the linchpins of that is rewriting the laws to suppress votes of people of color. And that's what they did in the state constitutions in the 1880s and 1890s. And that's what they're talking about doing in Georgia today. And so that is a key piece of what we have to be mindful that we're fighting up against. The other, other is the issue of sanctioning white terrorism and violence. So what they couldn't accomplish legally, the Klan, the white leagues, things like that, the, the insurrectionists you know, on January 6th of this year has all been an underpinning of this. And I was very encouraged to see that some of the Justice Department people in the Biden uh, administration are going to be talking about prioritizing domestic terrorism is one of the things they look at. And then the other thing is that they have never given an inch and that gets to this on any kind of pro-equality or pro-democracy measure. And that gets to the issue around how much are we going to spend time trying to get this fake unity versus how do we actually advance our agenda, right? I mean, in terms of researching the book, they couldn't get out of the House of Representatives the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. They just put into the Constitution say you should not hold human beings in slavery. They couldn't get the votes to do that. 
And that was a huge major fight. And to go back a second time, et cetera, et cetera. So this notion that we're going to get some level of cooperation is uh, fanciful. And so heading into this administration, that is one of the key pieces. So I think there are three broad things that we have to think about in terms of what the priorities need to be. And the first of that really is solidifying our power by expanding democracy. And because that the main thing that they're actually trying to do is rescind and reduce and shrink democracy. Someone, one of the Georgia Republicans just said today, as we record this, we have to make these changes so that we can win. Right. Not that about anything about how these elections actually function. So that is one of the first key critical pieces is to be able to pass the policies that can build our power by translating the demographic revolution, the population shifts into political power. And that means expanding democracy. So that's like one of the first things I think as we frame up these first hundred days. The second is governing in ways that actually improve people's lives, delivering a tangible benefit. One of the tangible benefits, I think, is going to be $2,000 checks to people. And so I think they're understanding that piece. And then third, which we can discuss a little bit, is how do you make sure that you're gearing your priorities and your policies towards the new American majority, the multiracial emerging younger new American majority, rather than towards continuing to try to understand and figure out and chase the Trump supporters as if that those are the most critical voters to be uh, mindful of. So those are the three things I think that frame up how we look at these first hundred days. And let me also just say up front, right, that, you know, we're obviously going to be real watchdogs and constructive critics um, of this administration and of the Democrats going forward. And so we'll have a lot to say that they may not be happy about um, us saying But I just want to say at the outset that I think there's a lot of good things going to be happening in this country in the next few months, right? I mean, obviously the bar is super low from the, uh, what this previous administration had done, but just from COVID relief and vaccine distribution, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, immigration reform, there's a lot of things that the Biden administration is planning and is going to be doing in this next few months that are going to make people's lives much, much better. And I do want to note and have us all appreciate and pause and appreciate that as we begin this new era. And I'd just like to add that I'm, I've been really encouraged by the comments coming out from Janet Yellen. She's, as we're recording, uh, actually doing her hearing right now for uh, nomination. And I, I'm actually, when I first learned that Biden was nominating her for the treasury secretary, I, it just made me feel like a weight had been lifted. Like there was somebody who has a track record of doing really smart, good for the American people work at the, you know, in in the financial realm. And I think it's going to make a huge difference. It's a economic policy, I think, can actually be uh, carried out by her in a way that makes sense. And that is going to, you know, result in some, you know, Steve was saying some real tangible impacts on just the regular Americans out there and not just people who own stocks and are doing, you know, really well because of the stock market, whatever. Um, you know, the underlying premise and economic theories that she's proposing are, are, you know, surprisingly progressive. It's a total change from what we've been working under. Democrats historically have been buying into this idea that you can't do anything too big right now because of this, you know, 
amorphous future concern about the debt and deficits and whatnot. And she's been very clear in the confirmation hearings and in comments, you know, leading up to them. Uh, There's a quote from her. She's like, neither the president-elect nor I propose this relief package without an appreciation for the country's debt burden. But right now, with interest rates at historic lows, the smartest thing we can do is act big. End quote. You know, and that's just so different from previous even Democratic Treasury secretaries. I love it. I'm just sitting here nodding like, yeah, go big or go home. That's it's, uh, where it's like almost experiencing some sort of like whiplash compared to what we just you know experienced over the past four years. And then to hear somebody like her come out with a statement like that, it's definitely encouraging. Where do we think, uh, Julie and Steve, where do we think, though, that um, Democrats need to be pushed in particular? I do think we're going to need to be very firm as far as um, accountability for coup plotters uh, is concerned. I think it would be very easy. There's going to be a lot of pressure to just, you know, make peace and move forward and make nice. But it was not just drunken frat boys who trashed Congress and the Capitol building. Those people were there for a reason. And in some of them, you know, clearly were there with an intent to kill or at least do serious harm to others, you know, in particular members of Congress. A number of them had military and law enforcement training, which is you know, incredibly concerning and needs to be dealt with, you know, really in a very hard, clear way. You know, you've got insurrection overthrow of the democratic process being encouraged by Republican U.S. senators sitting members of Congress. I mean, that just cannot be allowed to, you know, just be pushed under, set aside and act like we're just moving forward without dealing with that really directly. And just like Steve was saying about how we let our guard down after the Civil War, the you know official part of the Civil War battles, we can't just uh, let this uh, latest version of that go unpunished because otherwise it just resets the boundaries of what's acceptable, and that cannot be acceptable. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that point's critical in terms mm-hmm. of that. I don't think people appreciate it enough that in terms, of, if we're going to have a democracy, there has to be consequences for trying to det- attack and destroy democracy. Yeah. For all, and I think that in some ways the attempted coup was distorted by the, the images of the people in the crazy costumes. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, this person, whatever. And so it diminished some of the seriousness of it. But you had the majority of Republican sen- uh, Congress people voting to throw out the votes of basically 81 million people mm-hmm. even after the coup. Mm-hmm. Within hours. Yes. And mm-hmm. so that can't go unpunished if we're going to have a democracy. So that's, I think, an important thing to recognize. And that is a lesson from the Civil War period, too. Andrew Johnson, after they assassinated Lincoln, was eager to let back in the insurrectionists, into the government to forgive them. And what what happened when they forgave them is then they rewrote their constitutions, reinstated the Jim Crow laws, the suppression of black vote, undid reconstruction. And so there's the accountability part of the democracy piece. The other part of democracy is we have to advance policies that are going to expand the democracy. When I was practicing law, uh, the, one of my mentors, guy Tony Tanky, says that he always figured out what's the right thing to do by looking what his uh, opposing counsel wanted, and then he would do the opposite. And so to the extent that their go-to is to suppress the vote, 
our go-to has to be to expand the vote and to make it easier. And so one of the things I was actually quite pleased to hear just on, on Tuesday was Schumer announced that the very first bill for the Senate is going to be, they call it the, the For the People Act, which is going to be a democracy expansion bill that's going to pro- advance a whole lot of pro-democracy reform. So that's very encouraging. But with the filibuster, we're going to have to see, are they still going to fight for it and really try to advance to move that forward? But the fact that that's the first thing that they're putting up is very encouraging. So I wanted to go back to the second point you had mentioned, Steve, on improving people's lives, which is definitely urgent, um, more so than ever in our history. And Julie, I wanted to first ask you, since you're the policy expert, what do you see as the top priorities that can start to be instituted so that we can start really seeing an improvement in people's lives during this time? Well, I do think that the Biden team is is on the right track. As I mentioned, Yellen is clearly saying the right things and um, you know, indicating that they're going to go in the directions that would, would um, you know, best benefit folks. And also the two trillion relief package that's being proposed is is pretty good. You know, it's got getting cash directly to people very quickly. It's again, validating demand side, people side economics, as opposed to the old, uh, you know, Reagan idea of supply side where you mainly are helping businesses and that's not what's gonna be needed right now. Extending eviction moratoriums because you're just seeing just horrific stories of what's happening to people out in the streets right now in the absence of that. Uh, extending unemployment benefits for folks, supporting states and small businesses that are really, really financially struggling right now, putting out money for vaccine distribution, right? It wasn't enough to just make the vaccine, but we actually need to get it into the arms of folks. Uh, And then money to retrofit schools so that they can reopen safely and get kids back into schools, buildings. And so if they can pass this legislation, it's gonna make a a big difference, uh, you know, very quickly. And if it's done right, it can really lead to a more just and equal economy. I mean, it's going to be the first step toward that, but we got to at least get that first step done. It's going to lay groundwork for changing the consensus about economics, hopefully, right? Because the whole idea that government shouldn't be in the business of addressing inequality, it absolutely needs to be if we're going to really move beyond where we are right now. And then, Steve, what about your third point, who the Biden administration should govern for? Right. And so that's that's been... Um it's going to be critical, right? So one of the lessons as I'm looking at, you know, from the civil war to today is like, what are the core components of the strategies, both in terms of what's worked as well as what they've done. And one of them is playing the long game. And so the, the Republicans and the conservatives and the Confederates have played this long game with an eye towards how something's going to play out over the next decade or multiple decades. The long game from our standpoint is not who voted for Trump in 2016 or even who voted for Trump in 2020. It's who is going to be the electorate of the future. And so being much more mindful around that is a younger, diverse, multiracial population that has a different worldview and set of priorities than what we've been, you know, frankly, too much catering to in terms of the fears and insecurities and anxieties about diversity. And so the public policy agenda, the priorities have to speak to things like the racial reckoning that we just that we had last year, which has not gone away, like immigration reform, like climate change, like economic inequality, those are the issues that the rising electorate cares about. 
And that's what has to be prioritized is how do you win the enthusiasm and support of that sector of the population rather than how do you like reduce the opposition and the concerns of those who are not going to be with you anyways. So on that point, Steve, Gallup just released its final poll on Trump while he's president, and they found that his approval rating is is um, just 34 percent right now. Right. In the history of polling, which, you know, modern day polling, which goes back about 70 years and covers 12 presidents, Trump is the only president to never have cracked 50 percent, the 50 percent approval throughout his four years in office. His average approval rating was 41 percent, which is also a historic low. And, you know, despite all of that, we nonetheless spent the past four years with the media and a lot of leading Democrats obsessing over how to appeal to the supporters of the least popular president ever, right? It makes no sense. And the other thing that Steve mentioned, the sector that supports Trump right now is shrinking relative to the growing population that didn't support him, right? So the white share of the electorate has steadily declined each year by 17 percentage points from the year 2000. White voters used to comprise 81% of the voting population, but in this election, that number was down to just 67% of the voters. And that's particularly important when you look at young people, right? So in Georgia, Warnock, now Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff dominated <laughs> dominated the youth vote, right? They won by 36 points wow. uh, among youth over their opponents, right? And just want to note for the record that Warnock, the candidate deeply rooted in Georgia's African-American community, ran well ahead of Ossoff throughout the, the runoff, right? You know, we have to cement the loyalty of these younger uh, more diverse voters, and their issues are going to be more progressive. We've got economic equality, that's top of the agenda for them, climate change, immigration, race relations. These are things that are of uh, primary importance to folks that are in that growing uh, sector of the electorate. There's a recent Harvard poll of young people, young being 18 to 29 years old, that found that two thirds of young white voters want the government to do more on systemic racism, right? Now, of course, three quarters of African-Americans and Latinos feel that way, but it's, it's um, we see very clearly that among young people, these issues matter. Let's jump to immigration. Wanted to check in with both of you on your thoughts on immigration as an area of policies, what we could expect and what we're hoping for? Yeah. And so immigration, I mean, it's, it's uh, what our understanding is, I guess by the time this comes out, that Biden will have sent to Congress a bill for comprehensive immigration on his first day in office. And that is significant, not just substantively, not just strategically and politically, which it is in terms of the composition of the electorate, in terms of this, the long game issue, that if you continue to diversify the electorate, make it less racially exclusive, that that's good for progressive politics. But there's also a certain poetic justice and symmetry to this. Donald Trump rocketed to the top of the Republican field in 2015 when he started saying that Mexicans are rapists and murderers. That's what propelled him to his sense of power, and he has governed with an unapologetic pro-white nationalists and frankly, very American, when I look at the first uh, immigration law in this country, saying that to be a citizen, you have to be a free white person, 
and that being the law until the 1950s. And so what is this country and who are the American people? And does it include the full multiracial diversity of the people who live here? Or is this primarily a white country, which we begrudgingly allow some people of color and immigrants to be in? That's a definitional and a moral and existential question that this country faces now. And the fact that they're putting forward an immigration bill that does not concede to this notion that, you know, with, a, with apology about like, yeah, well, we shouldn't really have any immigrants, et cetera. That's very encouraging in terms of the larger more meta conversation that we need to be having. So I'm very, very encouraged. And the activists I've been talking to are extremely excited about the content of the immigration bill that they're going to move forward. And so that's, I think, something that we can all be be very excited about. So before we go, I just wanted to ask you just how you're feeling about this new era and you know what are some of the feelings going through you and what's on your mind? I think I maybe my my you know, expectations were super low, but I'm actually pleasantly surprised that I mean, if you look at Joe Biden's history and his core politics and the places he's occupied on the spectrum of the landscape, it hadn't been anything for us to get too super excited about, which is what we, how things played itself out during much of the primary. But I think the things that they are doing, the stands that they're taking, they're showing, having learned some of the important lessons from the Obama period, they're showing a resolve around kind of unapologetically undoing um, the, some of the core pieces of what Trump's folks had done that, you know, we're going to have a lot of struggles and fights. Are they going to go, you know, hard enough on, you know, racial justice and economic equality ultimately? But I think in this beginning phases, I'm more encouraged than I thought I would be um, given um, who Biden has actually been. So I, I'm entering this period with some optimism. Great. How about you, Julie? So I, I like Steve, am a bit surprised at how good I feel about it. The way the administration, you know, the Biden administration seems to be rolling out its, um, its agenda. I, I am really excited about the people that are being brought into the administration. I think they're, you know, I have tremendous respect for so many of them. And uh, I have a really high hopes that they're going to be able to make a lot of really positive changes and get us back on track. I, I feel way better. I think I didn't let myself feel hopeful for a long time because, you know, we were just like trying to get through and, you know, wait for, you know, tomorrow to come, <laughs> you know, the day that he leaves office. But now that we see things all coming together it's hard to not feel excited and, and super optimistic, frankly. Um, you know, I, I, it's going to be hard and we're going to have to, as we said before, you know, just really push and make sure that they're hearing the message loud and clear that, you know, they've got to go as progressive and as big as they can. But uh, I think, I, I think it looks good. I, I'm, it's a good, I'm happy about where we are as a country right now, the direction that we could be going in, in light of, you know, what we're putting behind us, let's hope. Charlene, how are you experiencing all this? Yeah, I think I was less optimistic um, before actually hearing you guys and, hmm. and your optimism and also all the different examples, right, of um, excellent people in place and what um, Biden is starting off with, with the immigration policies and really indicating 
um, what, you know, the message is being sent to this country. Uh, and as a child of immigrants, you know, it's really heartening. And it's really meaningful. So with that, I think I am feeling more optimistic. And I was picturing some sort of bumper sticker that said, you know, a new era, the bar is low. So <laughs> I am you know, feeling overall pretty good. And I just can't, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what's around the corner and to be on this journey together with both of you through our podcast and our listeners to, you know, talk about it all and think it over and give our thoughts on it. Yeah, no, it's been quite, quite the journey, quite the year to be having launched the podcast of make one of our first guests have been Stacey Abrams talking about Georgia and then a year plus later, Georgia delivering the Senate and saving, helping us save the White House and been quite the period and onward. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. And uh, Stacey Abrams uh, giving me a shout out election night has doubled my Twitter followers. So you can join that community. You can find us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or sign up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, Take a moment to appreciate the fact that the white nationalist fascist has literally been ousted from the White House. And while we face multiple daunting challenges ahead, we are nonetheless entering a new era, an era that does have great promise and potential. And so on this, the first full day of that new era, keep the faith. <laughs>